home and to worship with you all, so I'm thankful for this opportunity this morning. Our scripture this morning is the passage in Matthew's Gospel known as the Great Commission, probably one we're familiar with if we've grown up in church. It's the very last verses in the book of Matthew chapter 28. Jesus has been crucified, and Mary Magdalene and Mary have discovered that the tomb is empty. After conversing with an angel who tells them not to be afraid and to journey to Galilee where they'll see Jesus, they quickly run off to tell the disciples what they've seen. On their way to tell the disciples, they meet Jesus with both fear and joy. Meanwhile, some of the soldiers who were guarding the tomb went and told the chief priests what had happened. The priest, along with the elders, devised a plan to give the soldiers some hush money and instructed them to say that Jesus' disciples had stolen the body. They didn't want the news of the resurrection to spread. And this leads us to our passage for today, Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. Hear these words. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. Thanks be to God. This passage may already be familiar to some of us. For me, growing up in church in my Baptist tradition, this passage was oftentimes used before our youth group would be commissioned to go on a mission trip. These words are also sometimes used in baptisms. It's also a passage that is referred to when we're talking about evangelism and our call as Christians to go and make disciples of all nations. It's a short passage, only five verses, but ones that hold a lot of depth and meaning for those of us trying to discern what exactly it means for our lives today. There's four points and takeaways that I'd like for us to focus on this morning, and the first of which is one that Barrett talked about in his children's sermon. Do you want to come and just do this part? Okay. (laughs) The first point that I'd like us to focus on is that it's okay to worship and doubt. The two can go hand in hand sometimes. The setting at the beginning of our passage is an unnamed mountain in Galilee. For Matthew, mountains or higher up places are often where people experience divine presence. And the disciples certainly experience divine presence as they encounter the risen Jesus for the first time on this mountain. Their initial response is a mixture of worship and doubt. In Matthew's Gospel, the disciples who go to the mountain haven't seen any of the Easter drama. They haven't seen the empty tomb or the angel descending. They've not seen the risen Jesus or heard his voice until this point. Their reputations are about to be tarnished by these rumors that the chief priests and the elders have started circulating to convince people that the resurrection is a lie. All they have is the command from the women to go to Galilee. So they go, maybe grudgingly, not knowing if what the women have said is true. And when they get there and see the resurrected Jesus, they experience both worship and uncertainty, devotion and hesitancy. 
Some English translations of verse 17 make it seem like there were some disciples who were worshiping and some who were doubting, like it was two separate groups of people. But the Greek can also be translated to suggest that the entire group of disciples who were present were both worshiping and doubting. Matthew acknowledges that both responses can be found among the group. The Greek word that is translated as doubt in this passage carries this sense of standing in two places or being of two minds. Jesus doesn't commission perfect disciples who have it all together or who are perfectly composed. He commissions people who both worship and doubt. Maybe we can relate to the disciples' reaction when we think about our own experiences. Maybe we're familiar with this mixture of faith and doubt because we too have felt both at the same time. Oftentimes in church, doubting is shamed. We're told that we shouldn't doubt when it comes to matters of our faith or believing in God. So when we do experience doubt, maybe we don't admit it. But the Bible highlights the doubters. The Bible is full of stories of people who doubted. Our doubting isn't the issue, it's what we do with our doubt that matters. We can choose to act in faith despite our doubt. Like the disciples, we are called to go where Jesus will meet us, to seek the presence of Jesus. We too are called to worship, called to the unknown, to situations that we're not sure about. We're directed to the place where we'll meet the living Christ. But why should we listen? Perhaps we should listen because of the hope that the message might be true, that the living Christ will meet us. We hope that by coming to our faith community, by coming to places like this, where Jesus promises to meet people, that he might meet us as well. And that doesn't just have to be inside the walls of a church. We go to where we're being called or we come here to meet with our faith community to see if Jesus will keep his promise to meet us where we are. Making confession, offering prayers, voicing our sins, singing songs, all of this is worship. And sometimes we still wonder if any of this is true. Yet, like the first disciples, we bring our doubts here to the place where Jesus promises to meet us. It's okay to worship and doubt because this mixture of faith and uncertainty is a part of discipleship. It's a part of the process and the journey of authentic faith. The second point I'd like for us to focus on is that the authority that Jesus declares is an authority that liberates and empowers It doesn't dominate or control. In verse 18, Jesus starts by saying to the disciples, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This phrase echoes Daniel 7, verses 13 through 14, where Daniel has a vision. And in this vision, Daniel sees what he says is one like a human being, being presented to the ancient one, and receiving authority from God, so all nations should serve him. In Matthew's Gospel, Jesus is described as the Son of Man. And like in Daniel 7, the Son of Man has also received authority. One scholar notes that 
This is not an authority that demands people's submission, but rather an authority that empowers and liberates. If the authority that Matthew 28 talks about is interpreted as an authority to dominate, to reign, to subjugate, something like what we find in Daniel 7, then the goal of Christian discipleship is to conquer the world for Christ. One commentator emphasizes that this way of understanding the mission of the church reflects a patriarchal and imperialist model that characterized the conquest of America, as well as the missionary enterprise of the 19th and 20th centuries. However, the Greek word used in Matthew, exousia, has a little bit of a different nuance. It suggests an authority for service. And if this is the case, then the goal of Christian discipleship is not to conquer, but to liberate the world for Christ's sake, to serve the world. The authority that is given to Jesus and that he then transfers to his disciples is a power to do justice and to liberate others. In Matthew, the word authority is always used in connection with Jesus' acts of healing and forgiveness. People celebrate and are in awe of Jesus' deeds and words because they recognize that he's not acting authoritatively, but he's acting with authority, which is different. He spends the majority of his ministry setting people free, free from demons, sicknesses, sins, He exudes God's spirit by showing compassion to people who need him. He does something to liberate them from their suffering. So this authority that Jesus possesses has a more positive connotation. It's an authority that liberates and empowers rather than conquers and dominates. The third point that I want us to focus on is the inclusivity emphasized in verse 19 and the beginning of verse 20. Jesus instructs the disciples to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. Upon an initial reading of these verses, it does sound very authoritative, maybe even forceful. After all, Jesus does use the word command, which means to give an authoritative order or dominate from a superior height. But one scholar notes that he thinks this obedience to everything that Jesus has commanded them is more than accepting a certain dogma or doctrine. It is a call to pursue a style of life that is based on love and justice, a command to be doers of the word that Jesus has spoken from God and not simply hearers. It is a call to a common praxis not to a common religion. I like the way that this commentator phrases it. It's more about living a lifestyle based on love, justice, and compassion, characteristics that Jesus constantly and consistently embodied during his ministry. This notion of making disciples of all nations emphasizes the diversity of the early church. There was an initial inclusiveness that I think since then has been lost. It started off by being centralized in Israel. Jesus's initial ministry was directed to the people of Israel. But from this verse in Matthew 28, we can see that it's now replaced by a new and more inclusive reach to all nations. 
the disciples are encouraged to reach everybody, regardless of ethnic or cultural differences. This lifestyle of love and justice that Jesus embodies has no cultural, racial, gender, or ethnic boundaries. In addition, by Jesus naming each component of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, he's speaking of the diversity that exists within the Trinity itself. This reiterates the importance of the mission being carried out among all of the diverse nations. The structure of the Trinity reminds us that God is relational and diverse, and that there's unity in the diversity. When I was in divinity school at Campbell, I took a class called Theology and Food, and one of the books we read was called Soil and Sacrament by Fred Banson. The book is a narrative about Fred's journey of developing and discerning his calling in life to feed people, searching for ways that he could feel truly alive and connect to the land, Fred spent time in four different gardens with four different groups of people. During the season of Pentecost, Fred worked with a ministry in Washington known as Tierra Nueva, which was a ministry that provided people in the margins, as he called it in his book, with an opportunity to participate in a soil conservation movement and sustainability program. It also serves as a rehabilitation and recovery program for those who have dealt with addictions or criminal behavior in their past. One day while visiting a coffee shop that was also a part of the Tierra Nueva ministry, Fred met a man named Zach who was working behind the counter. Zach was one of the men a part of the rehabilitation program because he was recovering from a life of addictions, abuse, and criminal activity. Fred recalls that Zach was a man covered in tattoos with a shaved head a tongue ring, a yeti frame, and a fearsome visage. He was someone who was accepted by society's outcasts, but repelled by others. Zach informed Fred of his tragic background and explained to Fred that the reason why he had gotten all these tattoos was because he was trying to hide himself. He wanted to hide from the people who had rejected him and alienated him his whole life. Before Fred left the coffee shop one day, he asked Zach to conclude their deep and meaningful conversation with one last piece of advice. Zach responded by saying, Jesus is calling his lost children home, people on the streets, but the church doesn't see it. People like me, we have thick skin, we heal fast. That gives us a certain strength the church needs. The church needs to empower us, but the church is basically afraid of people like me. The church needs to say, we need you to people like me. We've been missing something, and it's you. We don't want to fix you. We just need you. That's what everybody has been waiting for their whole lives, man. For someone to say, we need you. Jesus spent his ministry letting the outcasts and the sinners know that they were needed. Jesus' love, justice, and compassion knew no bounds. He expressed love and compassion to all people. He let all people know that they were needed. There's no footnote or asterisk at the end of the verse. It doesn't say, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. But 
actually just to this group and that group. No, it says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, period. Jesus' way of life is one of showing love, justice, and compassion to all people. It's a lifestyle of inclusivity. Jesus was known for who he included, not for who he excluded. The fourth point I want us to focus on is Jesus saying, I am with you always to the end of the age. Matthew's Jesus never leaves. He stays with the disciples, with the church, and launches a commission, promising to do mission with his disciples. The risen Christ is declaring his presence among his people as they live into this new reality of being called to serve the world beyond racial, ethnic, and cultural boundaries. It's interesting to think about how, to get to this point in the story, the disciples followed the command to go to Galilee. And now they're being instructed to go and make disciples of all nations. Seeing that the disciples started their time on this mountain experiencing doubt, we might have expected Jesus to be a little bit more selective or to give them some time to adjust to their new reality and work through some of those uncertainties that they had. Is it a good idea for Jesus to command them to go out and make other disciples taking their doubt with them? But the good news is that the disciples are not making themselves the object of faith. The invitation is to follow Jesus. This promise of Jesus being with us always is what keeps beckoning both the worshipful and the doubtful into a journey of discipleship. And it's throughout the journey where Jesus will keep his promise. Like the disciples, we live into this Jesus way of life not knowing exactly what we'll encounter. But we do know who Jesus is. The one who shared space with people, lived and was present with them, and showed us what God is like. We have this promise from Jesus, a promise that's even in the name. Emmanuel literally means God with us. So as we worship and doubt, as we seek to liberate and empower others, and as we strive to show love, justice, and compassion to all people, may these words echo in our hearts and souls. Jesus says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Let us pray. Loving God, thank you for showing us who you are and giving us the example of Jesus. Give us the courage to embody and live into the lifestyle of Jesus. We want to show love and compassion to everyone. We want to be a people who are inclusive. Thank you for the hope and the promise that you are always with us as we strive to do just that. Amen.